Morning, church. Would you please be taking your copy of God's Word and turn again to Luke chapter 4. Today we're going to finish out Luke chapter 4, continuing in our narrative in Capernaum. We'll begin today in verse 38, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Remember as I read now that these are the words of the Lord. Then he, that is Jesus, stood up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she stood up and began waiting on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. And demons also were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he was not allowing them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came... Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were eagerly seeking for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as we do each week, I'll ask for God's blessing on our time. Father, we come before you this morning as we do each week, a people in need of grace. And it is grace that only Christ can give. And we receive that grace from the words of Christ. And here we are this morning in a text where we get to see Right before us, the incarnation of the Son of God. We get to see His mighty works amongst the people. And we get further confirmation of His kingly status. He is the coming King, the true servant of Isaiah. The true and better Israel. The final Adam. Please help us to see it this morning. Please encourage our hearts with what we see. So that we might go out of here, your ministers, a thankful people ready to serve in this dark and lonely world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For behold, the Lord Yahweh of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another and each one by his neighbor. A man will grasp his brother in his father's house, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. And these ruins will be under your hand. 
But he will protest on that day saying, I will not be your healer. For in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. This is from Isaiah chapter 3, taken from verses 1 through 7. This might seem like a strange passage to begin this morning's sermon. God's judgment here on his own people, turning them over to their sins. We hear of cities being destroyed, infighting and quarreling over a piece of bread or even a cup of water. For their breach of covenant with Yahweh, they must endure his righteous discipline. But did you notice the answer that the people of God, under his loving fatherly discipline, were looking for? Did you hear what they wanted to alleviate their varied troubles, the trials that they were suffering from? What was the hope of their salvation? They asked for a ruler. They asked for a ruler who would put his hands on their troubles and make them go away. Look here. You seem to have the nicest jacket among us. You're qualified to handle this mess that we're in. So get your hands to fixing all of these problems. The man they selected responds in a way that sounds to us rather strange. But he says, I will not be your healer. Isn't that interesting? In the mind of the ancient Jews and in much of the ancient world, the hands of the king were also the hands of a healer. Do you see that? If you're a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien, yes, I'm going to make another Lord of the Rings reference. At the end of book three, The Return of the King, after the great war of the ring, everyone in the almost entirely ruined city of Gondor is awaiting the return of the rightful heir to the throne of Isildur. But what would be the sign that that true king had returned? In the words of the sage Gandalf, let us not stay at the door, for the time is urgent. Let us enter, for it is only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in this house. Thus spake Eorth, wise woman of Gondor, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be made known. This morning, Luke continues his presentation of the ascendant king, Jesus Christ, who had come to preach the gospel to his poor subjects, to release captives and those who were oppressed, to proclaim the jubilee of his heavenly father. And as we see this morning in the text, the hands of the king are indeed the hands of a healer. Well, last week... We saw how Jesus performed his great exorcism, his first in the Gospel of Luke. And this took place in the synagogue of Capernaum. Today, our text picks up at the very end of that service in verse 38. Then he, that is Jesus, stood up and left the synagogue 
and entered Simon's home. With the Sabbath service now having ended, what would, in fact, be Jesus' next strategic move? Well, he would go to the fellowship meal, of course. And today, that fellowship meal happened to be at Peter's house. Now, before I get too far into the text, I want you to know that this text is a continuation of Luke's theme of the power of Christ, chiefly the words of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that more in just a moment. And that power begins to expand in this text from spoken authority over the demonic to spoken authority over disease. And as I've alluded to earlier, Jesus' supernatural ability to even just touch the sick to bring the cure. But in these first two verses, there's a few things that I don't want to skip over without making a brief comment. First, you can see in verse 38 that Peter was a homeowner. And Jesus entered Simon's home, the text says. The Bible is clear that this is Peter's house. It is not his parents' home. It is not his in-laws' home. And I'll tell you why that's interesting in just a moment. But also consider this. We have no biblical evidence that Peter ever sold his home. Now, why would he? After all, his wife and perhaps kids would need a place to stay. And this brings me to the second thing that I want to say. Cat's out of the bag at this point. The apostle Peter was, in fact, a married man. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked him, that is Jesus, to help her. We are told that Peter, in fact, had a mother-in-law. This confirms that Peter was, in fact, a married man. For men usually do not take along mother-in-laws unless they have a wife. I don't know why you're all laughing at that. Not only was Peter married, he remained so into his apostolic ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Paul argues for his own right to marry when he states, Do we not have authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter? Now, why take the time to emphasize this in a passage about the words and the works of Jesus Christ? Well, because just this. The church today needs a strong word about believing those words of Jesus Christ. These are the words of Jesus right here on the page in front of us, and also the entire book from beginning to end. And Jesus' word in the beginning says that it is not good for a man to be alone. So why have the pulpits of America been parroting the lie to parishioners that it is in kind of a way, maybe, sort of, good for men and women to be alone. You need to figure out who you are. Don't make marriage an idol. Devote yourself wholly to the Lord. Singleness is, in fact, a good thing. These are the kinds of things that are often spoken from the pulpits in our country. But God did, in fact, say that it is not good for man to be alone. 
Most of you know that the Roman Catholic Church insists on a strict vow of celibacy for its clergy. They would argue that in this passage, for example, because Peter is the first pope, thus he must be unmarried, his wife, who he was married, they would acknowledge, but had died at this point. At the beginning of Peter's apostolic ministry, his wife had already passed away, so he was still caring for a mother-in-law, but he was an unmarried man. This is, however, an argument from silence, which cuts both ways. And the passage from Corinthians, from the words of the Apostle Paul, suggests that Rome is, in fact, reading the text the wrong way. Additionally, the Catholic Church, other anchor of truth, and that is church tradition, goes against them on this very point. The early church historian Eusebius records that Peter and also Philip and even the Apostle Paul himself had wives, though they did not take them along on their missionary journeys. Eusebius also records that Peter had children and his wife was very active in discipling women in the community. She was also martyred for her faith, according to church tradition. But it's not so much Rome's view here that concerns me. It's the way the evangelical church today treats singles and singleness. They don't want to make them feel bad. They don't want to make them feel like black sheep. And so they talk very highly of those who are unmarried to the point at which it almost starts to sound like it's a virtuous thing. <laughs> Discipleship matters. And over time, for the sake of the greater good, the single person, the individual, or missions overseas, or college, or careers, whatever you can think of, young people are in greater and greater numbers within the church of Jesus putting off marriage. Citing 1 Corinthians 7, the church today says, if you remain unmarried, you can give yourself fully to the Lord, which is true. Paul did say that. And so they'll say things like, make the best use of your singleness. Give yourself to doing God's work, as if caring for a spouse and raising children is not also the Lord's work. The evangelical church is starting to sound a bit like Rome, if you ask me. Wasn't Paul single after all? This ignores the command, however, that the apostle Paul himself stated at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in his instructions to marry people and single people. He says, because of sexual immorality, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own wife. Husband. That is the guiding principle that governs everything that Paul says thereafter. The result is that we as a church are actively discipling immorality in our congregations. Churches today are loaded with high school grads to 30-somethings who can't control their bodies and are secretly fornicating with one another instead of getting married and starting families. Delaying childbearing till late in their fertile years an entire generation of Christian women are discovering that they are then unable to have even one child of their own. This, as a result, fosters bitterness 
towards other women who had children earlier, as well as the church that told them to wait. And so they go to the inseminators, whom they pay exorbitant amounts of money to fertilize far more eggs than they will ever use, and only implant a few, thus adding to the perhaps millions of babies in freezers all across this country, most of whom will never have a chance at life. Beloved, these things ought not be so. First and foremost, Paul's encouragement to stay unmarried in 1 Corinthians 7 is couched in a particular context. He says, this is in view of the present distress. That's in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 7. There was a ton of persecution going on in the Christian era during those days, particularly in Rome. There also happened to be a nasty famine happen, happening at the same time. This is a historical fact. 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul's pastoral wisdom applied to what was then a current ongoing crisis. Paul wasn't suggesting that going forward, singleness was to be the new covenant gold standard for the people of Jesus. The church cannot, therefore, and must not bind young people to stay unmarried. Secondly, celibacy, notice I said celibacy, not singleness. Celibacy, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, is a gift from God. Calling it a gift is a perfectly clear way of saying that it is not our choice to remain celibate. It is God's choice for us. You can no more choose the gift of celibacy than you can choose the gender that God gave you at birth or the name your parents called you when you left the hospital. Therefore, our current understanding of singleness has to change. If you are of the age and maturity for marriage and the desire is there, you don't have the gift of celibacy. Go ahead and mark it down. You do not have the gift of celibacy if you do not want to be single. Okay? You are single, but you don't want to be. And at that point, you have no mate. If you have no mate, you cannot by any logical standard walk around saying, I am so blessed to be single. God said that it is not good for a man to be alone. Let us not then say, what a blessing then that I am alone. In Psalm 78, Asaph retells the history of Israel's rejection of God and his judgment on them for their sin. At one point he states, He also gave over his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his choice men and his virgins had no wedding songs. God's judgment is on our nation in many ways and the epidemic of singleness is one example of that. That does not mean, however, that single people cannot use the ordained Years of singleness ordained by the hands of providence to bring about great glory for the kingdom of Jesus. They can and absolutely should use the time wisely, making the best use of that time because the days are, in fact, evil. Tammy and I have both received significant ministry from people who have yet to have their wedding song. But if you ask them today how they felt about their singleness... They would tell you, and it would be without any sin in their heart, they would tell you, I want to be married. I want to be married. 
Finally, if all of the boxes are checked, then we as Christians should not forbid marriage. Our children are unique, and readiness for the season of marriage will come at different times for each of them. The completion of puberty is not the only box to check. There are also questions of maturity, a man's ability and capability to provide for a family, that the couple are a suitable match for one another, that they have their parents' blessing, and I'm sure there are others that I could list. Beyond the obvious, however, parents, pastors, and parishioners setting up any prohibitions to these young people, such as, he has to make $50,000 a year to marry my daughter, or they should both finish college, or they need X number of years of singleness to figure out who they are first. All other sorts of nonsense like that is a foundation that tends towards failure for our young people today. It's like giving a person who's freezing to death a house that doesn't have a fireplace in it. Because you can bet your buck that they're going to try and build a fire in that house. And as you can guess, without a fireplace, it is going to cause tremendous damage. Parents, no matter your children's ages, you cannot change the fact that they will soon be desiring marriage. It's going to come faster than you can imagine or they can imagine. So consider today in an age-appropriate way starting conversations with them about relationships, about looking for virtuous qualities in other individuals, and even having the conversation about God's gift for sex. Teach your kids some common sense stuff here, stuff you wish your parents would have taught you. Give your boys marketable skills so they can hit the ground running. Get them ready so that when a legitimate candidate crosses their path, they are ready to launch. Well, now that I've spoken to those opening verses, let's continue with our text. Let's turn to the healing power of Christ now in 38b to 39. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. They asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she stood up and began waiting on them. Now, Luke uses some of his good doctor medical terminology here. The Greek is very rich. Sune, komene, pureto, megas. None of that made any sense to you, except perhaps that last word, megas. So, what that says in the Greek is she was suffering from a mega fever, okay? That's why it's called high fever in most translations. Some Greek scholars even think that this terminology points to the fact that Peter's mother could have been inflicted with dysentery here in this case. Again, we see the mighty Christ using only his words, making his blessings flow far as the curse is found. But you have to admit, this is a rather strange way for Jesus to handle a fever. He doesn't pray for her. He doesn't lay his hand on her. Instead, with everyone gathered around waiting for what Christ will do, he stands over Peter's mother-in-law and speaks a verbal rebuke to the fever. It's almost as if the fever is personified here as its own kind of of entity. We must admit, beloved, that there are links between 
this physical world and the spiritual world or the unseen realm, even to the microbial level. And we must admit also that we don't understand these things. Germ theory is, in fact, a helpful tool, and it does work. But contra to the Carl Sagan mantra, the universe is, in fact, not all there is, not all there ever was, and not all there ever will be. Some hypothesize that this fever was caused by a demon. Later on in the text, you see that Jesus is healing and demons are coming out of many. But Luke does not make that clear here. What we do know is that the fever responds to the command of Jesus. And you see that it responds to the command of Jesus instantly, without hesitation. Christ is king and his words are sovereign over every square inch of creation. And, as we see, the fever isn't the only thing that instantly responds to the words of Jesus. Peter's mother-in-law had her own immediate reaction. The Bible says that she got up and began waiting on them. There's no hesitation. Doesn't seem that she woke up and had a conversation, tell me what's been going on while I've been in bed with this fever. No asking what happened or somebody helping her, getting her a glass of water. Hey, why don't you just take it easy? Having been liberated from her fever, she responds in worship of her king by serving. Now, I want to say that this miracle actually did happen. Jesus spoke these words. It is real history of the world that Jesus expressed authority over even this cellular malady inside of this woman. But as you know, these parables and these types and these shadows that we see in these real stories are meant to point us to a greater spiritual reality. Salvation from sin, first and foremost, we learn, comes only through the healing power of Christ. You've probably heard people pray for healing over others by quoting Isaiah 53, verse 5, which says, By His, that is Jesus's wounds, we are healed. You have a prayer service, people lay their hands on people, and they say, By His wounds, you're healed of X, Y, or Z affliction. Okay, you've probably been a part of something like that. This passage, however, is not a promise that Christians can, at their own command, use to deliver themselves from any affliction. Now, you may be thinking, how can you say that, Chris? I don't understand. I've heard that prayer prayed many times. I've actually seen people delivered from afflictions. The truth is that Isaiah was communicating that the rescue from sickness that is needed is not a sickness of a fever or a sickness of a broken limb, or a sickness of a cancer, or a lifelong acute disease. What Isaiah was pointing to was the cure of the disease of sin. And that comes only through the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter gives us this divine exegesis in 1 Peter when he states, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. 
It's a great exchange. That's really what the passage is about. It's not a carte blanche. We can lay hands on people and say, because of this verse, then this. We can pray for healing, and God does heal people. But that verse is pointing to a greater healing, a more significant one, a far more eternal healing in the spiritual realm. So then lost person, you who hear my voice this morning and you're far from Jesus, will you stop running to the lousy, helpless physicians of the world and the flesh and even the devil who offer up to you nothing more than solutions of corruption? The slanderer offers you glory in his failing and fleeting kingdom. What's going to solve your problems? Well, a little more darkness, a little more of the secret things of the world. Come, follow me. What about the world? Well, it offers you pride and pomp and momentary prestige. What about your flesh? It says temporary pleasures are what's going to take away all of your pain. Dopamine rushes from food and drugs and sex and finding out who you are. And it lets you change who you are as often as you like. Lost person, people spend their whole lives seeking healing in these things while their eternal soul lies on a sickbed, dying in sin in need of Jesus. Only he can rebuke the stony heart that's killing you. Is he doing that right now, lost person? Will you then bow your knee to him as the only one who is able to save you from your sin? The second thing that we see from this picture of Jesus' healing, rebuking the fever, and Peter's mother-in-law's immediate response is that graced people are gracious people. Graced people are gracious people. This woman got up without a word and began to serve in response to the good that was done to her by our Lord. And in response to this, she immediately goes to the altar of faith She presents her body as a living sacrifice in worship to her king. If anyone be in Christ, he then becomes a new creation. She didn't immediately become perfect. She still needed discipleship and growth in grace. But you see here that the seed of God's grace, just a window in this little story, the seed of God's grace has been planted into her heart. The tree that sprouted could not help but bear gracious fruit, producing grace-giving life to those around her. The processor of her heart is now running on a new operating system. The programs are already submitting to the new coding. Beloved, I ask you, is this true of you? No, hear me clearly. I'm not asking if you've been made perfect. That's not what I said. None of us have been made perfect yet. But let me ask, where is the grace of joyful service in response to Jesus' gift of new birth to you? To bring in the theme of thanksgiving, where is your gratitude to the Savior? Fathers, where is your gracious behavior towards your children when they sin against you? Jesus didn't come up to this woman's sickbed and give a furrowed brow for her and her weakness. Nor did he do so to you when you lied wallowing dead in your trespasses and sins and spoke the healing words, live. How can you then 
who have received such grace, withhold it from the little ones entrusted to your care, many of whom are in desperate need of the same grace that you've received. You have been granted forgiveness for an unpayable debt. Will you then with anger and shouts prove to be graceless in your own home? In a moment, we're going to see how even Christ himself renewed his strength for the ministry of life that God gave to him. But hear the words of the writer of Hebrews now. In chapter 13, it stated, Through Christ, let us at all times offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that thankfully acknowledge and confess and glorify His name. Christian fathers, would you repent today of your lack of grace in your home? Would you put down your busy schedule and start thanking God for all that he's already giving you and begin extending again that grace to your own wife and children? If you'll look with me now at verse 40, we see that Jesus' healing ministry continued throughout the rest of that evening. While the sun was setting, the Bible says, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Here, we see the Lord Jesus seems to change tactics a little bit. Without words, he begins to simply heal with his hands. I mentioned this earlier, but Luke is opening up the scope of Jesus' power and ministry. He's focused us in for some time now on the authority of Jesus' teaching, on the power of his words to impact the hearts of people, and then to deliver and direct the demonic control in the area in which he's moving. And he had this somewhat private healing of a woman with a word, Peter's mother-in-law, the situation we just saw, to here, now there's a public healing, and whole crowds are coming to him, and all he is doing is just merely touching them and delivering them of their sicknesses. The hands of the king are, in fact, the hands of the healer. Notice too, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole text, that Jesus deals with individuals here. Laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Luke doesn't say, laying his hands on them, he healed them. He doesn't speak to this amorphous body or crowd. He says, each one. Attention, though there were masses, though many were coming to him for healing, he took time to deal individually with each one. He is depicted as the good shepherd who knows each of his sheep by name. He knows their, ne he knows their needs and takes time to care for each one individually. Church, can I call you this morning to repentance? Repent of the thoughts in your heart and the false humility that says, I don't know why Jesus chose me. I am so undesirable. That is nonsense. That is nonsense. Do you really think so much of your own judgment that you would call into question Christ's choice of love for you? Jesus loves each of his sheep. Do you doubt it? It's a genuine love. Your sinful, selfish feelings about yourself can never change the love of Christ for you. This is one of my favorite truths in all of the Bible. The center 
of Jesus' affection for me is in no way dependent on my confidence in that affection. Not in the least. It's the same in marriage. I'll give this illustration. I'm sure there are many women in here who know that your husband loves you. But you've been married to him for years and you cannot grasp why he loves you. You feel so imperfect. You feel so frail. You're fraught with sin. You're anxious all the time. You're sometimes a complainer. And I've not met a woman yet, a Christian woman who's been converted and seen her sin and seen her need for Christ. I've not met one who's told me that she hasn't at some point struggled to feel beautiful in her husband's eyes. But sisters, how can you so easily deny your husband's affections solely on your inability to understand and believe them? I cannot comprehend the massive damage that would be done to East Tennessee if there was some kind of international attack on Oak Ridge. But there are brothers here who have far higher intellects than I do who assure me that even though I live in a concrete cube, every valley would be lifted up. <laughs> Sisters, if you wrestle with the assurance of your husband's love, would you be set free by his simple testimony? When he looks you in the eyes and says, I love you more than anyone else. You are still beautiful to me. And I will never leave you. Who cares if you don't understand? Rest and rejoice and respond to him by faith in the love that you can't see or understand. And by the way, brothers, if you haven't said that in a while, you should do so. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. None of us can comprehend the love of Christ for us. But that love is so real and so concrete and it will never change. It has been the same from eternity past and it will be the same into eternity forever. We will never be able to change or affect the love of Christ for each one of us. Amen. Now we see in verse 41 that many of those who were sick were also dealing with demon possession. The demons also, the Bible says, were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, he was not allowing them to speak because they knew that he was, in fact, the Christ. As we saw with the man in the synagogue... These demons all possess knowledge of who Christ is. And Jesus tells them, in essence, put a lid on it. Don't talk. You're not allowed to say anything. And of course, when we encounter passages like this, the natural question is, why? Why would he not allow the proclamation of his name, even by his rebels? Why does Jesus forbid the demons, and even at times his own disciples, from speaking openly about who he is? This question has puzzled theologians for almost all of church history. It's often referred to as the messianic secret. Without going too deep into the research here, there are two good reasons, I think, why Jesus forbids the demons, in this case, to speak. First, the demonic testimony is an undesirable testimony. 
of all the endorsements for his ministry, our Lord certainly does not need his enemies to be the ones to spill the beans about who he is. Sadly, the enemies of Christ tend to be the quickest to confess, while his royal ambassadors, the church, are often reluctant. And I think there was another good reason why the demons wanted to confess who he was. They wanted to get the word out quick. They wanted to make it known to as many people as they could. And that is this, the second reason. Any announcement of Christ before proper understanding of Christ would lead to a false Christ. People would be believing in a Jesus that was not totally who Jesus was. They would be believing in their perception of the Messiah, their hoped-for coming, conquering king, and not the biblical definition which Jesus was laboring and taking time to teach before he made his triumphal entry. Jesus wanted to give more time for his teaching before he officially met the press, so to speak. This is precisely why Christ the King does missions the way that we do. It would be wrong for a missionary to go into a country, learn a few colloquial phrases, some ancestral stories, and then preach a gospel that would ultimately be misunderstood by the people that they came hoping to see saved. Our missionaries are committed to the long and tedious process of learning the heart language of a specific people group, along with the customs and beliefs. And this is a process of years. It's not weeks or months. So that the gospel can be communicated accurately, so that they won't misunderstand who Jesus really is. The response that's often given is, but won't people die during that time and go to hell? What about a simple gospel presentation? What about using their own stories or history or the like? Isn't there a faster way to get the gospel to these people? Jesus didn't want a faster way here. He wanted to take time, make sure that the people understood exactly the Messiah that was coming to them. He wouldn't let the demons or even his own disciples share who he was before the hearts of the people were ready because... Half the gospel is an incomplete gospel, and therefore half the gospel is a false gospel. Well, finally, in verse 42, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were eagerly seeking for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Jesus, having had a very full Sabbath day with teachings and healings and exorcisms and the like, he sought a place of isolation. The parallel passage in Mark informs us that Jesus sought this out specifically for the purpose of prayer. We know that was communion with his Father. He who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything had in this very short period of time given all that his human body could take. Necessity demanded that he seek again a private audience with his father where he could be strengthened again for work. We don't know much about the time that he had alone or even how long it was. Luke makes it sound like it didn't last very long. Like a pack of blue tick hounds, the crowds were eagerly seeking for Jesus. They went, they found him, and then they try and throw the bars down and prevent him from leaving them. What a contrast! 
Capernaum wants to put a leash on Jesus and keep him all to themselves. And Nazareth wants to be rid of him forever. Can we put this guy in a slingshot? And how fast can we get him out of here? But our Lord tells them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. And so he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You might think of Judea as that southern region around Jerusalem. Judea is here actually used as colloquial language for the entire territory of Israel. As I close, I want to point out for our edification two guiding principles from our Lord's example here. The first is, of course, the necessity of regular seasons of rest. Notice the wisdom displayed by Christ in seeking solitude with his Father. When day came and Jesus could get back up and go back to work, preaching and teaching, healing and liberating people from the clutches of Satan, Jesus left and went to a secluded place to be alone with the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Holy Trinity, divinity undiminished by his incarnation in his human body needed rest. We know from other scriptures that Jesus became tired and required sleep. You might think of the instance where he fell fast asleep in the front of the boat during the tempestuous storm. We've already seen at the beginning of this chapter how he required food when he was tested in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. The Bible said he was hungry. The Bible also reveals that with at least some healings, Jesus would feel power actually go out from his person. Now, there are few mysteries more complex to the Christian faith than what's called the hypostatic union of Jesus. This is the perfect co-joining of his humanity and his deity which doesn't diminish either the humanity or the deity. He's 100% human and 100% divine. And our brains say, I can't make sense of that. But it's the truth that the Bible teaches. Yet none of the things that I just mentioned, Jesus becoming tired, Jesus requiring food, Jesus feeling power going out from him, none of them is the result of him losing any deity, and none of them is the result of sinful flesh. They each show us that Christ was, in fact, completely able to identify with us as representative. He is like unto us in every way, yet without sin. Except when we bow in worship at the altar of our own busyness. It's the most agreeable Christian idol, isn't it? Busyness. Rising early. Going late to bed eating meals in anxious worry over whether or not your strivings for sovereign control over the day, your attempts at godlike omnipotence to accomplish your little task list. We can make all sorts of excuses why our hurry is holy. I'm running the race to win the, win the prize. The days are evil. Got to make the best use of the time. God helps those who help themselves. We pride ourselves on having days so full. But how often are they so Christless? My favorite liberal pastor, Eugene Peterson, wisely said, 
Busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It is doing the easy thing rather than the hard thing. It is filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's actions. It is taking his charge from him. Brothers and sisters, repent of your unholy liturgy of busyness. Crafted to create your ideal kingdom, God did not put you on earth for that purpose. Here in this passage, Christ will tell the people that he needs to go and preach the good news of the kingdom to other cities instead of theirs. And what did they find him doing in order to accomplish that greater task of sending the gospel bit by bit to the ends of the earth, pushing it to the edge of the envelope? They found him sitting in silence and solitude, connecting with his father. For those of you who live in a never-ending stream of worry, hurry, and fret, your calendar probably needs an eraser. Your heart needs a deep breath. Your mind needs some freedom. Brothers, find a way to retreat. And yes, you can do that in a deer stand. I would just encourage you to leave your phone at home and bring along your pocket Bible instead. Sisters, it's easy to take shots at the guy, the guys all day for having those lustful eyes. But what about the women who have busy bodies? It would benefit all of our women to go on a walk without a phone or a shopping agenda. I cannot tell you how often it should happen in your particular case, but I know that our Lord could not do without it, and therefore neither can we. We have to have rest. Isaiah said, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Where was Jesus finding his strength? In quiet and in confidence before his Father. The second thing that I want you to see here is the appropriate response to encountering Christ is persistent proclamation. As you take time away to commune with the Lord and you find him because you seek him with all of your heart, you should not be able to keep him to yourself. I mentioned earlier that the ungodly Nazarenes wanted rid of Jesus, but here in Capernaum, what seems like a really genuinely wonderful thing, oh, we want Jesus, we want to keep him, is actually the equal but opposite error. They attempt to bottle Jesus up for themselves. They've seen the healing hands of the Messiah, the healing hands of the king, but they don't want that king to go and build his own kingdom. Just stay and work on ours. You wonder why you never share Christ, why you hesitate and clam up and look for reasons not to. Have you become like Capernaum, busy with your own agenda, looking to him only for what he can add to it? If that's so, brothers and sisters, repent. The Bible says repent. We cannot keep this Christ or his glorious kingdom to ourselves. That is a wickedness. And what a wickedness it will be on that day when all is revealed and we see that we kept a cup of cold water of the life of the gospel from those who needed it. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The blessing of light in not, is not in what it is or has, but in what it can give. That's how light blesses the world. It is time for the church of Jesus Christ to reorient itself under the divinely appointed limits of our humanity. We must admit that we are weak and needy, sick with sin and buffeted by the trials of this fallen world. How we need a king to come and heal us with his powerful touch. And this we receive when we come before him with necessity on our hearts. And when he offers us his grace, we arise a people eager to sow the grace that we have received into the lives of others and build a kingdom for him who died for us, one built on the rock, one that cannot be shaken. And suddenly, Faramir stirred, and he opened his eyes, and he looked on Aragorn who bent over him, and a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes, and he spoke softly, My Lord, you called me, I come. What does the king command? Walk no more in the shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary. Rest a while and take food and be ready when I return. I will, Lord, said Faramir, for who would lie idle when the king has returned? Farewell then for a while, said Aragorn. I must go to the others who need me. And he left the chamber while Gandalf and Imrahil. But Baragon and his son remained behind, unable to contain their joy. As he followed, Gandalf shut the door, and Pippin heard Eorth exclaim, King, did you hear that? What did I say? The hands of a healer, I said. And soon the word had gone out from the house that the king was indeed come among them. And after war, he brought healing, and the news ran through the city. And so let it be with us, Christ the King Church. Father, we come before you a people in need of your grace. And you have given it before. You have given it this morning and you will continue to give it to us. Then let us respond to your grace by giving it to others. First, resting before you in thankful response to your grace and then moving to advance the kingdom to share that grace with those in need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.